0: Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience.
1: Chris Fremont, welcome to the Center of the Universe.
0: It is a pleasure to be at the Center of the Universe, although there's people who know me who think I've always been here based on what I say.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's less an ego thing for this podcast and more about the conversation is me being focused and centered on you, and so you've become uh, the center of the universe for this podcast and me, and for me as my guest. And so, uh, I guess we should start with how you and I uh, connected. Uh, you and I both have the uh, the fortune, or, or pleasure, or misfortune of knowing Bill Walker.
0: Ignominity? is that maybe a better term?
1: That's a uh, now my audience likes two syllables and fewer um, in their words. Oh. but. So we'll pull back from the polysyllabic approach to tonight's talk. Huh? One, one, two at most.
0: That's all right. Walker's already looking it up anyway. Wondering what the hell I just said.
1: <laughs> yeah, but well, I worked with him. Uh, he's a Philly guy, and uh, had, had the pleasure of working with him for a couple of years in Richmond. And how did you guys connect?
0: Uh, Bill was our chief revenue officer at Unison, which is
1: in the real estate industry,
0: um, similar to debt, but it's equity and he and I shared an apartment because he commuted from Philly and I commuted from Chicago and roughly two and a half, three weeks a month, uh, we'd be in the condo at the same time. So I was two layers below him and I was on our business development side. So it went myself, then Joe, the gentleman I work for today, and then Bill. But because Bill and I would sit on the couch and watch sports and eat chicken wings, we'd be able to talk shop. And I got, you know, a C-level executives here and we became friends.
1: Yeah. And he's a, uh, by all accounts, he's a, a normal, very bright, uh, worldly guy. But I never had to uh, stay in the same place for two or two and a half, three weeks at a time. Was he a good roommate? He was a great roommate. I mean, you know, we were working hard. Bill likes to get up early. He was on East Coast time.
0: I was on Central. So he'd generally rise naturally an hour before I would. And he'd get up there and get all of his meetings. But uh, we'd get home around the same time a little later. Yeah, we watched a lot of basketball, a lot of baseball, a lot of football. Got the evenings through. Joined each other in the gym. We had a nice place to live. We enjoyed it. It's a good time.
1: All right. So you're you're talking about watching sports, uh, and I I have an idea where you would say you're from. But instead of me answering that, where would you say you're from? Well, I'm from Chicagoland. I've been here since 1983.
0: I follow the Hawks. I support them. I follow the Bulls. I support them.
1: I watch
0: the Bears and I cry, but uh, baseball belongs to the Cardinals.
1: Ah, now what is it about baseball uh, and St. Louis that you've stuck with them and not maybe stuck with some other sports out of St. Louis? Well, actually, ha- are there any other St. Louis sports teams in town these days? There used to be you got the Blues, which have
0: always been great in hockey. But yeah. remember, the Rams got driven out. By, yeah. I can't remember her name was it Georgia or something like that. Yep. Yeah. But um, baseball and the Cardinals comes from my father so my dad was an accomplished pitcher uh did very well in high school didn't quite make the make the asu team but he he was there when rick monday was there and reggie jackson were there but he was a pitcher so i grew up playing baseball uh pitcher first baseman third baseman and at the time my father was a cardinal fan so his father was a yankee fan and being born in 42 he grew up during the great era of the 60s with with gibson on the mound So he had to counter his father's affiliation for the Yankees with a team at that time that was competitive. So that carried over with me because in the 80s, I was born in 73, Cardinals went to the World Series three times. So when you're a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, it's a lot easier to watch a winner and be supportive of them. And this was really during the dark days of the Chicago Cubs. I mean, you're talking games that Shit, they'd have 1,100 people who would show up at some times. Harry was drunk by, you know, third inning. <laughs> and he really had to be a lovable loser fan at that particular point to follow him. And baseball was kind of one of those things. This is well before the days of cable that allowed my brother and I and my father to kind of bond together because my, my brother Mark, who's younger than I am, you know, he played baseball. We played catch with dad, you know, good old portion of Americana right there. So, but following a winner was easier than following a loser.
1: No, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, the Cardinals were very, very good to the three championship point you just made. The Cubs, I, I don't know their full history. I know they hadn't won a World Series since 1918. And, of course, they won one a few years ago. They, I mean, they had almost a, a century of, of misery. Uh, and yeah. you're right. 40-year-olds have a tough time rooting for a loser. Uh, to your 1,100 fans in the stadium point. Uh, but, yeah, Kids, ten-year-old kid, they're not. They don't want to follow a loser. You don't get to talk any smack to your friends. That's right. It's one thing if you
0: grew up in the city and you had a job or a career, or maybe you could sneak out and you could go to the ballpark because you worked in, you know, the north side of Chicago. You could go experience the game. It was really approachable. You could always get a great seat. You could be have that intimacy. You know, be inside the bases, if you will, sit do home plate. I, I, I just, I, I don't know how. You get behind a team that had such inept management that they would have truly wonderful loyalty of their fan base if they were successful, which was proven. But you know the old joke here: before they won a couple of years ago, was that Haley's comment has passed twice before the Cubs won a, since the Cubs won a World Series. <laughs> you know, I I I literally think Haley's comment passed like one or two years after they won their first one and then he had all those years before it just comes back with every 72 years or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. it's, but baseball is actually a great sport in the Midwest. You know, a lot of us grew up playing it. A lot of us grew up loving it. I think that you take a look at some of the, the teams around here, Cubs, the White Sox, the Brewers are great fans. Detroit is full of great fans. St. Louis is great fans. You're generally surrounded by people who understand baseball and if your fans understand what's going on in the game, the players really react better to that. That's kind of where you get some of this, you know, eternal gratification that kind of feeds on itself. You know, a lot of people get pissy with the Cardinals for playing the Cardinal way. It's just this thing that they picked up on. But I think it means something to a lot of ballplayers. They tend to be loyal to these hometowns. I think they go to the New York's. They got to put up with a lot of fans they are very, very particular. They're very demanding. Philly is the same way. They get paid a lot of money because the metro markets are so big. But I think they're more comfortable playing in the heartland than they are on the coasts.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. There's a a depth of loyalty that you find in the Midwest that you're just not going to find on the coast typically. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed in your your listing of Midwest teams, you didn't mention uh, the Guardians. Do you consider Ohio part of the Midwest? I do.
0: I don't understand the name change in the Guardians. I think that's a little bit of a, a wimpish attitude. And I didn't mention Cincinnati because I grew up in the Mars shot area and she was kind of a bitch, but hey, you had the big red machine. I mean, you had three of the greatest names of all time played on there. Cincinnati probably deserves a little more respect from me, but
1: yeah, well, One of my good friends growing up was a Cincinnati fan. He was super obnoxious, so I've always disliked him (laughs) because of that. All right, since we're on sports, let's pivot to another sport. Let's just get the Bears out of the way. Why are they so bad recently? And I say recently, the last twenty years. McCaskeys. Yeah, they just don't know how to run a team.
0: You've got an ownership. You've got an ownership group that seems to be. They seem to be less interested in producing a dynastic team by drafting properly and putting money where it belongs. And instead, they ride on the coattails of the great 80s teams that we had. Now, that being said, I don't know Georgia. I don't know Mike. Chicago sports are very polarizing when it comes to these opinions of how the ownership should really behave. We have an interesting dynamic that might change the shape of Bears going on right now and it's them potentially, if not officially, I haven't, you know, I don't watch local news, to be honest. But their affiliation with Soldier Field and how piss poor the city of Chicago and the Park District has managed Soldier Field has hindered the Bears in many ways with the amount of revenue they can generate, the box seats they can generate, the inability to put under a dome and bring a Super Bowl to Chicago, which could obviously support it from any perspective airport hotels restaurants right all those things we should have a super bowl here and with their potential pivot to moving to arlington heights on the old grounds where the racetrack used to be or still is it just needs a big yellow truck to take it down i think the bears would theoretically be able to rebound because i think they have some bad deals that the city has put in front of them that have locked them into You know, these multi-decade deals, support a stadium, subsidies, all that stuff. And then they really haven't drafted as well as they probably should have. There have been some long shots that have not panned out. That happens. But they haven't done a great job of backfilling. We had a little bit of a sense of hope recently. You know, Khalil Mack came in. We had a great defense a couple years ago. We had a nice resurgence. But it fizzles out. We don't really finish the job the way we used to.
1: And that is, well, so a lot of teams in the NFL that are perennially not good. And when I say perennially not good, I'm thinking of the Lions, even though they've been playing better the last couple of years. Uh, As an example, the Texans, they're a fairly new team, uh, but they've not really done anything. And we can name probably another six or seven. my impression of those teams is the owners are in it to uh, participate in profit-sharing. Uh, And so they'll spend and generally do what they need to do to barely qualify for profit sharing and no more. I don't think that's the Bears, unless you tell me otherwise. No, I
0: think that that's a really, really proper way to look at it. I think the McCaskies love the team. They love the city. They love the fan base. They're not Dan Snyder, right? I think you hold the Redskins or whoever the hell they're called these days. That What are they? Commanders. They are the Commanders? So I got the Guardians and I got the Commanders, right? I'm
1: surrounded by Commander paraphernalia. Down okay. Around. Yeah. You,
0: you take a look at what Dan Snyder has done. To your point, that feels like somebody who is literally milking the cow for its last drop and doesn't give a shit about the product that, that gets put on the field. He's like the same Eddie Lampert, the guy that uh, took out Sears and Kmart. He's just been milking those bonds and whatever the cash flows as those great names. Well, great names in Sears adequate names in Kmart, but still they were a multi-billion dollar business and just drove him into the ground for his own gratification.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't think the Bears feel that way. I don't think that I uh, I could be wrong. I don't listen to Chicago sports talk radio, but I don't think the general consensus here would be they're just clipping a coupon. I think they want to put a better product on the field. I really believe that they have one of the greatest, Legacy brands in all of sports. Yeah. You got 4 million people here who would love to turn out and support them if they put a great product on the field.
1: I mean, Chicago has a reputation, and you live there, for being a a rough and tumble town. Um, That, to your point, is super loyal. What better name to have in the team's lore than Dick Butkus at middle linebacker? I mean, my goodness. Yeah. Exactly. Walter Payton at running back. Yeah. Mike Singletary, a middle linebacker.
0: Erlocker in his heyday was one of the best the game's seen. You know, he's got a gold jacket. Gail Sayers. Yeah. Brian Piccolo, if you want to tear up a little bit.
1: Oh, man. That, that movie uh, makes me cry every time I uh, even think How does think it not? Watch it. Yeah.
0: Exactly. But Yeah. You, you, you want to see a better product. I really hope that we are able to move the team to Arlington Heights, and I really hope that it does produce a better football team. I think that the city. You know, I, I don't I don't know that you want to get into politics. It can be ugly and bad, but Chicago is really run very poorly. And it's being run more and more poorly at a faster and faster rate every year. Losing the bears, losing that revenue, losing that foot traffic just feels like another nail in the coffin for the city itself. But Chicago is becoming less and less important every single year. The suburbs are, you know, I'm in the suburbs. I'm in the Western suburbs. I'm in a town called Naperville. It's very Chicagoan to say, where are you from? And you say Chicago. And somebody who knows the city says, oh, where? You know, Lincoln Park, you know, Ukrainian village. Like, no, no, no. I live in Naperville. Oh, you're from Chicago land, <laughs> Right. You ask a New Yorker in the five boroughs where you're from, they're going to tell you Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island, whatever it is. Chicago ends. look at Chicago as an identifier for who they are. Only once you get past that introduction does somebody say, oh, yeah, I live out in the suburbs. Bringing the bears to the suburbs, that's going to be a big body blow to the city of Chicago. And they kind of need that awakening. They need to lose that tax dollar revenue.
1: Yeah, I think they do. And I don't think Chicago is unique in what I'm about to say, but a lot of the big cities in this country and New York is its own animal. So I don't necessarily throw New York in there, but I certainly throw L.A. in there. Um, There's corruption upon corruption, and I think there's this exponential effect that happens when there's been that much corruption for that long. It just it gets worse at a much faster rate as each year passes
0: nobody has been able to combine corruption with nepotism like Chicago I this is this is anecdotal you can't use it as a stat but if you were to look at like the state level or the city level or the county level you take any state but Illinois and let's say that there's 200 unions teachers janitors whatever they may be bus drivers, police officers, firemen I think Chicago, because we're so fractured and so corrupt, we have something along the lines of 10,000 unions. Doesn't make any sense. And it's all because of nepotism and favoritism, the way Mayor Daley started out the machine, as it's referred to here locally as the machine. Now, ironically, we've had some big names, Mike Madigan, um, Edward Doliak, and some of the other old guard are finally looking to be put under pressure by the feds. And we hope that it's a sign of putting uh, sunlight as a disinfectant on what we all know exists. But they just got too greedy. The aldermen of Chicago are, holy shit, are they notorious. I mean, all of them is a really unfair statement to many of them. But those that are corrupt, they are staggeringly corrupt.
1: So the term alderman is not something that I'm super familiar with. Is that essentially like saying city council person?
0: It is. Think of Chicago, if you were to divide it up like a pizza, and every slice was a ward. Chicago has wards, and those wards elect aldermen, and they are your local representation, almost like your state or city congressman. And they are the ones that run the city of Chicago based upon their own little precinct and fiefdom. And inside each of those wards, you start to develop your own need for your own supportive roster of people, right? And that's where you start to develop these make work programs, and these wards are jockeying for state dollars and local dollars and federal dollars to improve their ward. And that's when brown bags and favoritism comes into play.
1: Say more about brown bags. What's that? Say more about brown bags. I'm not familiar with that reference. Bags of cash. Ah, yeah. Sorry. I'm a little uptick. I live here in uh, a, a place where I, I'm sure that happens, but I just, it's not something that's uh, super common or. It, Maybe it is common, but it's not. It's overt. I I think it, look, I think in politics, you kind of have to assume at this point that
0: the fix is in at some level, right? Whether it's, you know, insider trading at our congressional level where people have made a lot of money knowing what the government's going to do to the overt, legitimate, on-camera, Chicago aldermanic way of literally taking a bribe in cash on tape, being caught red-handed and saying, why is this a big deal?
1: It's unbelievable. It's, it's crazy. It's awful. It's horrible. I, I, uh, so why did you – well, I probably have a decent idea of what this answer is, but I'm always fascinated by especially big cities. Why did Chicago become a, a place people flocked to in the first place? Look at where the location is. It's the, it's the quickest path via
0: rail that allows you to connect the West Coast and the East Coast. And when we were able to reverse the flow of the Chicago River, which used to flow into Lake Michigan and led to multiple cholera outbreaks, we -hmm. reversed the flow, which is a wonderful feat of engineering. And the Chicago River now flows into the Mississippi. So if you think about it from a geographic perspective, you can have ships enter at the St. Lawrence Seaway up in Canada and New York, come all the way through the Great Lakes and then exit into the Mississippi River and the Gulf. So Chicago became one of the greatest hubs for both um, heavy metals. I think, you know, God bless him. He just passed us, you know, Gordon Lightfoot and the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, the iron ore coming out of Canada and Michigan. You would bring heavy metals into the steel founders of Gary, Indiana, and Chicago. You would bring, and it used to be called the hog butcher to the world. We had some of the larger, largest stockyards I think the country has ever had because you could butcher animals and move them across the country on both Um, uh, rail and water and do so very effectively. So you had a relatively temperate climate. All of those things came together to make Chicago what it was. And then as we moved into the fifties and air travel became more critical. O'Hare airport is fantastically situated if you're going to travel the country. And the last but not least is heavy industry began getting its feet underneath it because we're so close proximity to Detroit and the automobile and manufacturing areas, Chicago became one of the feeder cities for tool and die guys, Mm. as well as the plastics industry, because you move plastics in mass on rail and in boat. So you had a confluence of events that really came into play here that grew the city itself. We diversified. We brought in finance. We brought in retail. I mean, at one point, I think all state was here. So you had insurance. You've got uh, medical with Baxter and AbbVie. Um, You have a very diverse workforce here or had. I think the last 20 years, our politics have driven away a lot of that corporate headquarters. You know, Illinois, right up there with anybody else right now. We drove 100,000 net population out last year with bad policies. Mm. But Chicago's growth came because of the the water and the rail.
1: So uh, I'm ashamed to say this. I'm in my mid-50s. I didn't realize they had reversed the uh, direction of the Chicago River. I had no idea. Yeah, if you ever get to Chicago, one of the things
0: that you know people always say, hey, what do I do when I get there? I'm like, I don't know. Go to a fucking Cubs game, order a pizza. <laughs> right? But what you really ought to do if you're ever here is go take one of the Chicago architectural tours on the river. Because it's got tremendous architecture. You know, Mies van der Rohe. You've got the gentleman that built the WGN building. And you got the NBC Tower. You obviously have the Sears Tower or Willis Tower, I think as it's called today. It'll always be Sears to those of us who grew up here. Um, but you can get an unbelievable sense of Chicago's history by way of water. And you got to remember, Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocked down the lantern and wiped out most of the city which is why we have Water Tower Place, which is the last place that was left standing after the Great Fire. And we rebuilt Chicago, so it was relatively modern from that perspective. But yes, the the reversal of the Chicago River was a critical component of keeping our citizenry healthy because of your capacity to move the sewage downstream as opposed to into your drinking
1: water. Mm. Is there a documentary or several out there about uh, the Chicago River and what they did there?
0: I'm sure there are. That feels to me like that would be on one of those modern Marvel type shows on the Discovery Channel.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could look
0: it up and send you an email if you're a poet. No, I can Google it. It's defi- it is definitely one of those things that people should know more about. It's a true engineering feat.
1: It, it sounds amazing. You reference the uh, the Great Fire. I mean, that's where the, the second city moniker comes from for Chicago, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people think it's like the uh, the younger sibling to New York, which doesn't really make any sense. Like, how would that have happened? It's because of the fire. But I swear yeah. a lot of people on the East Coast think that that's where the nickname comes from. And you know what? Quite frankly, from probably 1900
0: all the way to today, Chicago, God, maybe if you were to call a second city in the country from that perspective as a New Yorker, it was probably Chicago for a long, long time. And then L.A. probably took us over. But yeah, you are correct. My understanding is it's from the rebuild.
1: Yeah, I I guess if you go back 250 years back to a Bill Walker reference, Philly might have been the the second city. Who knows?
0: (sighs) (sighs) Philadelphians are unique people. I'll give you that.
1: Yeah, I've had a few Philadelphians on this podcast, and every time I ask them about the city of brotherly love and ask them where that name comes from, they try to give me a legitimate answer. And I'm sure there's a wonderful history that, I wasn't paying attention when they explained it because their fans are unbelievable. Now, I, so I've been to a Giants game. I've been to a bunch of uh, Commanders or Redskins games. I, I've been to a few Eagles games. I Name a handful of other franchises. Eagles, I've never been to a Bears game in Chicago. I've seen them play uh, in the Meadowlands. Really? Yeah, I've never been to a game at Soldier Field. Are the fans as crazy as Philly fans? Because Philly fans are out of their minds. No one's as crazy as a Philly fan, and that includes – I've even been
0: in, you know, uh, the right field bleachers at Yankee Stadium where they have the bleacher creatures. Philadelphia is nothing but bleacher creatures. I mean, aren't you guys the ones who threw batteries at referees? (laughs) They threw uh, bottles at Santa. Yeah, I mean, good Lord. Nobody's like the Philadelphia fans. You don't – look, I'm sure it happens, or – but I don't think that you get the same level of um, alcohol-induced passionate violence at Chicago sporting events that you might in either Philly or New York.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I'd love to come to a game at Soldier Field uh, just to experience it, and I'd love to come there when they have a competitive team, and I think they're probably a couple seasons away from being competitive. I think they're actually, to your point, trying to be good again. I do, and I think if you look at their most recent draft, they did a great job. I think the Bears
0: ranked relatively high on who they picked and how they're trying to fortify their, uh, their team. So I will tell you, like most of us that live in these four climate areas, um, if you ever get a chance to go to a Chicago Bears game on a Sunday afternoon when it's 66 degrees and sunny, it's really hard to beat that environment here. You know, the humidity is blown out by that time of year. We got that cool, crisp, you know, crisp fall air. Skies are bright and blue. I'd like to say that generally Chicagoans are very friendly. You know, it's one of those towns where you see somebody looking at a map and they're looking at a road, a Chicagoan will generally stop and say, do you need some help? Now, depending on what neighborhood you're in, they said, you need some help and give me your wallet. But that's a different, that's a different problem. But yeah, I, I, I I love being a Chicagoan, but my time here is probably measured in the months right now. My son gets out of school. He'll graduate from high school in uh, June of next year. And depending on where he wants to go, uh, the old man's probably putting the first sale sign in the yard. I got to get wow. out of here.
1: Yeah, by the way, I did not mean to be offensive when I said rough and tumble earlier, because I know no, a no, no. wonderful people from Chicago. But it does have a reputation for being a, a fairly, if not mostly blue-collar kind of place.
0: I think that's very true. I think that's very fair. I think that if you went to a Chicago White Sox game, you would get a very different demographic than you will to Cubs game. The Bears have a tendency to be much more homogenous because there's only one team to root for that's not separated by north side, south side.
1: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You know, you get to New York,
0: you've got the Jets and you've got the Giants. You got the Yankees, you have the Mets. You have the opportunity to go ahead and still demographically align with who you think your peer group is. It was called the City of Big Shoulders, right? Yeah. A lot of iron workers, a lot of a lot of guys who work with their hands here. It's a big union town.
1: It's a proud 10, town. Ten thousand unions strong. Something like that.
0: I'm <laughs> telling you, it is it's a it's a bananas number. It is so embarrassing.
1: All right, I'm not gonna bring up the Blackhawks, uh, other than to say I know nothing about the NHL, uh, but we can spend a little bit. They, they've won a few Stanley Cups, right?
0: And they were a blast to watch in the last 10 years, but the last three or four years, boy, it's been misery on ice.
1: And that's, I mean, I, I think like most, sport, all sports kind of ebbs and flows, right? You're not going to stay on top every year. I, I'm going to
0: misspeak. And there may be some people who actually watch this who will know much more than I do, but I think that the NHL in general, with revenue sharing, I think the NHL in general has had a hard time allowing teams, and maybe this is part of the plan, but I think it's been very challenging to have a dynastic team, right? Take a look at Brady under the Patriots, let's call it 10 years, of very competitive or Peyton Manning of the Colts or whatever you want to look at. I believe that the revenue numbers in hockey alone have changed the dynamics of how they've been able to put together four, five, six, seven-year strings of players. I think that that may be true across the entire NHL. The Hawks might be front and center because they're such a proud, established, longstanding franchise that is supposed to be good by, I don't know, momentum alone. But I think that when these rules changed, the Hawks kind of got caught with a lot of these expensive contracts and had to let some of these other guys go. I don't know what they're called, called a franchise tag. I'm misspeaking here. But I think that that really has hindered the Blackhawks.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I follow the the NHL playoffs just because I love playoffs in almost any sport. And the the names at the top, the ones that end up in the Final Four and and playing in in the finals, the names tend to change quite a bit the last few years.
0: Yeah, and, you know, look, is that good for the sport? I don't know. Is that bad for the sport? I don't know. I know that going to the United Center and watching a Hawks game is still a lot of fun. You know, it's the kind of place where it gets really rowdy, gets really noisy.
1: Well, hockey games in general are are, uh, fantastic in person.
0: Hockey is definitely one of those games you need to be there to really understand it. I mean, even on these new 4K TVs at 90 inches you can get at Costco for a bag of ham and a buck. Um, that puck is too small. I mean, it needs to be the size of a pizza for me to follow the damn thing. Yeah. But when I mean, you're in the game, when you're sitting there literally watching it on ice and it's, you know, a couple hundred feet in front of you, it's it's fantastic. I think era- basketball is kind of similar in that regard.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah, it's, it's the intimacy uh, does not come through the, the TV screen. Well, i I tell you what
0: that surprised me. I I did not play basketball. I'm tall, but I'm fat and I'm slow. Basketball was not my sport. Um, When I was working with Bill uh, to bring him back up and we were out in California, it was 2019. I was in the office a little late on a weekend and I was staying over that weekend instead of flying back to Chicago. It was during the playoffs. The Warriors had a great team. They were going to game six against the Raptors and my marketing manager, Chief marketing officer came over and she said, hey, do you want to go to the game tonight? We just got a call from one of our sponsors. We were buying a lot of TV time and advertising time. They have a couple tickets on Will Call. I'm like, I got nothing going on. So I went. I didn't realize how much money we'd spent on advertising because the seats I had were amazing. Um, I actually had to step on George Lucas's toe to get to my seat, which I were profusely apologized for. But um, we were probably uh, five to six columns left of center court, but I was only seven rows off the court. This is game six of the NBA. Finals. What I was completely and utterly unaware of, because I do not play basketball, is how amazingly athletic those men are. I have never seen people that large move with such speed and precision in my entire life. NBA players, they have to be amongst the most gifted athletes I've ever laid eyes on.
1: I would argue that basketball players are the best athletes. And when I say athletes, I'm defining that the ability to run fast, to be quick in the moment, to jump high, but I also mean extreme, to your point around precision, extreme coordination yes, of their feet, hand, eye, all of that. And, uh, and oh, by the way, uh, the average player happens to be seven or eight inches taller than the average person.
0: Right. Yeah, they're, they're 6'5", 245 pounds of, of pure muscle. Being that close to the court and listening to the guard or whoever would be in charge of calling the play, Watching the play unfold and seeing a basketball move across a court at that speed. And seeing how fast they could get to the basket, how high they could jump. I was, I was literally blown away. I, I'm not a big basketball fan. It's one of those things where I think you tend to follow the, the sports you played as a kid when you get older. You know, it's very easy for me to watch a baseball game and understand strategy because I played it for so many years. It's very easy for me to watch a football game and understand it because I played it for years. I couldn't draw up a play if I had to in basketball or hockey. I just not, or soccer, just games I didn't play. But it gave me a very, very different perspective as to what goes on on the NBA court that you cannot possibly capture on a TV. It's
1: impossible. It's a great reminder. Another bucket list thing for me. I need to go to an NBA playoff game, which I've, I've never done. And if you go, I can't stress this enough, spend the money and get as close to the court
0: as you can. If it's going to be one of those things, don't go sit upstairs. Go see how close you can be to those guys.
1: Yeah, They are
0: physical specimens. Tip my hat to them. I could not believe what I saw in my eyes.
1: Yeah, the the only thing that's probably as impressive as looking at an NBA player like that is a left tackle on an NFL team. Yeah, very large men. Oh, my gosh. It's almost like they're a different species. It doesn't make any sense to me.
0: They they are. They are very large men. I mean, I'm 6'3". I got a three handle on me. I got nothing on the left tackle.
1: Oh, nothing. You have nothing on them. They're they're six, 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 seven, six, eight, and they're three forty.
0: Yeah, and they fill up doorways with their shoulders. They are wider than they're thick. I mean, it's
1: just freaks in nature. Absolute freaks in nature. All right, so let's round out Chicago sports with uh, the Bulls. I I don't think we can talk about the Bulls without talking about the '90s and the six championships in the '90s and Michael Jordan and that those teams, but. Have they been good since Jordan retired or since he went back to Washington? They've had decent teams, I guess, a handful of seasons. They've had had a dozen
0: seasons of competitiveness, but they've never had anything that could put together a run. Because I don't play, because I didn't play, and because I don't watch religiously, I don't have a strong foundation or rationalization as to why that is. But this one may be one of those things where you point the finger at ownership. Mm. And we go back to the Daniel Snyder type comment as to how many times can you wring the washcloth to make sure all the water is out of it? Bears ownership, Bears ownership, or sorry, Bulls ownership kind of has a high correlation to that from what I read between the lines.
1: It's almost amazing they were able to put together the teams of the 90s. It tells you the power of Michael's influence. Absolutely. So, but you lived in Chicago when all that was happening, or in Chicagoland. Yep, uh, Land. yep. And I don't, I don't think you could live in that part of the country and not realize what amazing uh, accomplishments were, were happening, especially the second trio of championships after Jordan plays double-A for the White Sox. I mean, that doesn't That's make right. any sense. I have a regret.
0: I took the Jordan years for granted and didn't watch nearly enough games. No, you didn't play the sport. I get it. I totally get it. It's right. I mean, it, it wasn't something that I understood. Obviously in hindsight, you look at how great he was and Jesus, you know, he was surrounded by Scottie Pippen and, you know, Dennis Rodman and the other guys that came in, you know, the names are escaping me, Luke Longley, et cetera, Steve Kerr. Um, if I could go back, I would have spent more time watching the sport to recognize that I was seeing greatness, just like people who probably live in Boston have been paying attention to Tom Brady, just like people who are golf fans paying attention to Tiger Woods. They were at such a different level than everybody else. I mean, I think Jordan's on record. I, I don't think this is apocryphal, but somebody asked him recently last five or 10 years, Hey, could you guys beat the Lakers? He's was like, yeah you know I was like well by how many points you know this is back when lebron was there and kobe was there And he goes i don't know it'd be close probably by two or four points a game would it be close i said you know why so close he goes well we're in our 60s <laughs> 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 you know that just that just, that just, that just that little justified swagger there from
1: michael oh he, he he gets to own that all day long and i don't think anybody's going to say anything about it unless you're a <laughs> I, I certainly hope that that quote is actually legitimately attributable
0: to him because it's a great line. But, yeah, uh, they were that great. And, look, they were playing against the you know Detroit. I mean, Lambeer, guy's kind of a prick, but Lambeer is a hell of a ball player. You had Zeke up there. I mean, one of the greatest point guards of all time who was over overcome by Jordan's greatness. It, it, it was a wonderful time to be a, a Bulls fan. And at that time, we had – the Bears were – habitually competitive, right? Yeah. Then you had the Bulls, and you had the Cubs winning their 13, 14 games a year. <laughs> so we had the – and the Hawks would put up a decent team right now. So we kind of had better winter sports than we had summer sports for a long run here in the 80s and 90s.
1: Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's let's pivot to uh, something that I that is true in your life that I am jealous of. You, you've got a side hustle I don't think does it justice – but you have <laughs> in, endeavored to uh, make a living, and I, I don't think it's a top secret, right? this is this is known No, by- there's
0: no secret, but I, I get a kick out of the side hustle and make a living when you know this past year was a tax deduction. But go on.
1: <laughs> well, uh, I, I think you have line of sight to it. Uh, you making a living potentially off off of this. I, I think that's true. Yeah. so I started drinking wine.
0: In 2001, um, a couple months before 9 11. And when you start to drink wine with an interest in it, and I don't mean just to sit down and have a glass of bread with dinner, but I mean start to understand terroir and regions and, you know, Napa Valley versus Sonoma, Bordeaux versus Burgundy, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes along with it is food. So I started drinking wine seriously in 2001, began some like collections. Worked my way through to the point where it's about 2012, 2013. It's probably coming up on 10 years now, where I was involved in some of the more popular online chat rooms for wine people. Calls cork dorks if you want. And one thing led to another. I met a gentleman who was an American expat who had retired with his wife to the Beaujolais region of France. He was a capitalist at heart. Um, traded his own book on Wall Street on. Know as a stock trader, and one thing led to another. But there are some fine wine glasses that are mouth blown, there's probably about five to ten brands in the world today. And I began reselling them to the people on the wine bulletin boards, just trying to make a market. I'd gone to a wine dinner, somebody had these glasses on the table, they're very light, they're very elegant, they're beautiful compared to what I had at home. I'm like, holy shit, I would love to replace mine with these. And I looked up the price when I got home and, it, you know, 60 bucks at the time per glass. I had about 100 glasses in my house because we would do tastings and dinner events. You know, you're talking about a six or $7,000 nut to crack on crystal. Well, that got vetoed relatively quickly. But what it did is it had me thinking about, well, how do I sell enough of these to other people at a profit that I could then put them in my China cabinet at no cost? Mm. That business got to be several hundred thousand dollars. I was doing a process called gray marketing, which is not illegal, but gray marketing means you're bringing in legal sanctioned packaged goods, but you're bypassing whatever your residential distribution channel is at the OEM or the manufacturer established. The brand I was bringing in has some U.S. distributors. They don't like me going past them because I'm eating into their profit margin. One thing led to another, and I had to get out of that business. It's not worth going into on the the call because it's painful. But it ended up me meeting a gentleman named Alexander Mack in 2018. I had purchased some of these glasses from Alex, and he had had some ideas about his own wine glass. He's a young man. I don't think he's 30 yet. Hmm. Uh, he was just named to Forbes' you know, up-and-coming 30 under 30 type thing in the last year super bright guy and we hit it off and he had put some designs together for four glasses under the brand name Grossel, which is a family name. And he'd been working on this for probably seven to 10 months, maybe even a year before I even met him. So it was just one of those strange bits of happenstance where somebody with a distribution channel, I have a good reputation in the wine glass industry, in my opinion, from what others tell me. Um, so my distribution plus his idea, his access to the foundries and factories in Slovakia, which is where our glass is blown. One thing led to another, literally over the course of six weeks, we agreed to kind of launch a brand. He owns it. I'm just a distributor. I have North or not North American United States distribution rights, import rights. And, you know, we're having a lot of fun with it. I'm currently not profitable if you want to look at it that way, because I'm putting money into the business. You know, we invest in marketing ideas, we invest in distribution I've now got a warehouse. We ran this thing. Uh, A gentleman named Phil Carlson is my GM, my VP, aide de camp, whatever it is. Phil runs the business for me daily. Uh, But we were running this out of my two-car garage up until about a year and a half ago. And we finally moved to a warehouse space. Um, It is a passion. Uh, Phil and I have launched our own brand called Vice, which is a stemless glass and a rocks glass. And the Grosso glass is a mouth-blown wine glass we're going to globally probably the brand will sell anywhere from 75 to 110,000 glasses. I don't know Alex's exact number, but I have a range. I would say that we are or were uh, the fastest growing mouthful glass in the country. I think that Alex has gotten distribution now to probably 20 or 30 countries. Mm. Uh, the U S goes back and forth probably with continental Europe as his largest markets. And, you know, we've, We've had a lot of fun. I wish we'd been more profitable, but I think we will be. It's a lifestyle for me in the long run. I like food. I like wine. I like fine dining. Some of the kindest, most generous sharing people I've ever met in my entire life come from my wine experiences. Um, I've made some lifelong friends from the wine industry and Hopefully in five or ten years, this will be something I can segue out of banging my head up against the world of fintech and prop tech, which is where I lose my hair today. And segue into a much more, let's call it romantic lifestyle of travel and fine dining where the gross revenues get to be written off at Michelin star restaurants because it's for business.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I hope you get to that place. Uh, what's What's better than... Doing something you enjoy, you're passionate about, and you can you pay the tax man and some other folks along the way. That's it. right,
0: and and you know, son, it's fun getting my son involved in it. You know, he's seventeen. Um, he works with us in the warehouse when he can. Um, it's something that he enjoys with me. I'm sure I'm breaking some law, but yeah, you know, he drinks wine at home with me. He's got a good palate. You know, I think it's a lot of fun to go to a winery. It's a lot of fun to meet the winemakers. It's great to experience great food and great wine together. Um, But most importantly, it's actually impossible to have a great bottle of wine if you drink it by yourself. Mm. Yeah, You have to have that shared with somebody else. You really do. And that's the part that I really like. I think we're all social animals. People who know me know that I kind of tell people, hey, I hate people. Get me away from here. I'm looking for 200 acres and a sniper tower. When I get out of here, just leave me the hell alone. There is an uncomfortable level of truth to that, but the reality of it is, I do like people and I like people's story. It's fun to hear your story over a bottle or five of wine.
1: What's your uh, so you understand? Well, what's the process of evaluating? Wine, I, I don't understand any of it. I'm not a uh, wine guy. I'm more of a bourbon guy. I really don't even understand the, the bourbon world, uh, but I do enjoy a good a good bourbon. Uh, well, it depends. You know, are you drinking? You know, are you going to be drinking for flavor or are you going to be drinking for
0: effect? Ooh, probably for effect. If you drink for effect, you can separate wine if you want to get down to the brass tacks. Just old world, new world. Okay, old world is going to be Europe mostly continental and your climate, your terroir, your techniques, your styles, which are all driven by history and winemaker, um, habits and training, old world wines tend to be more nuanced and more reserved in alcohol. They try to probably keep their ABVs between 10, 11, 12, 13%. It's becoming harder as you've had some warmer years in a lot of the uh, wine regions. And the warmer it is, the harder it is to keep those alcohol levels low. New World, Australia, New Zealand, United States, South America. You've got some fantastic areas to grow wine. But for whatever reason, those winemakers have seemed to make their mark on higher octane stuff, you know, big, burly Napa caps, big, burly Australian Shiraz. And when you're younger and your liver doesn't hate you, it's easy to absorb those wines. It's easier to drink them. They tend to be very fruity with the ripeness. Americans have a tendency to have a heavy hand with oak. Oak leads to a vanilla type note. Who doesn't like it when your house smells like cookies? right vanilla is an easy flavor to absorb in your palate makes things soft to drink um i personally migrated away from the higher octane wines i love napa valley cabernet it's very very distinct whether you're picking up rutherford dust or other notes but i have to drink my napa cabs 10 15 years after they've been bottled they have to calm down a little bit when they're young they are truly untamed mustangs they'll just beat the hell out of you. They're a blast to drink, but you remember it the next day because you wonder where the hell that 16 and a half ABB truck came from because <laughs> they go down really easy.
1: So are you more of a red wine guy?
0: You know, I actually drink both. I drink pretty much 50-50. Um, I think white wine gets a bad rap, especially amongst men. It's generally deemed to be a feminine wine, right? Let the women drink their Chardonnay and the men will go drink their cabs. Um, pro tip, it's a lot harder to make a white wine than it is a red wine. Mm. A white wine will show every single flaw that that grape has to give you or your technique pulls out of it. But some of the greatest wines of my life have been white wines
1: Mm. and
0: white wine is actually probably easier to drink in the summer. You take what the Spanish and the Greeks and the Italians put out in terms of their very light wines. They're very sippable. They're very light on the palate. They have a lot of acidity and acidity in wine drives your salivary glands. And that's why a lot of those Mediterranean type wines go great with food. Sometimes they can be hard to drink on their own, but the minute you pair them with food, they're just lovely. White wines can be refreshing. Um, Red wines are generally going to be heavier. They're going to be brooding. They're going to be something that dominates whatever you're going through at that particular time. That's why you compare pair a red wine with a steak. All of that fat has to have this, the, the body, but man, I got to tell you, there are some white wines out there that will absolutely change your life. And people really should get to know white wines better and set aside any stigma they may have on masculine or feminine
1: or stuff like that. Uh, all right. So if you were going to turn me on to, to wine, where would, you start, where would I start? I'd probably ask
0: you what you like to drink normally. You drink bourbon. So do you like spirit? Do you like heat? Do you like the alcohol? I do.
1: I'm not sure I understand.
0: I would probably start you with, you know, let's go find you an Australian Shiraz or a Napa Valley Cab. Okay. Those both have a tendency to be higher octane, higher uh, ABV. But at the same time, if you don't have bourbon available, give me your next best drink.
1: Oh, boy. I'm, I'm probably going to a, uh, a good vodka. And are
0: you going to drink vodka and meat, or are you going to mix it?
1: I'm going to mix it. And what are you going to
0: throw in it? Tonic?
1: Ooh. Tonic. Uh, I, I, I love a good uh, screwdriver. I don't know what it is about orange juice. but uh, Okay. Yeah. Then the next thing I'd like you to try would be to try German Riesling. I've actually had German Riesling, and it's fantastic.
0: And, you know, there are some German Rieslings that, you know, they will they will surprise the hell out of you. The Germans, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Germans follow rules.
1: <laughs> I was born in um, Germany, so I know a bit about the place.
0: That's right. You know, uh, the Germans have a thing called predicate. Uh, it talks about how they rank when grapes are picked. It talks about how their sweetness levels are. It's a very – um. I don't know it off the top of my head, okay? But this is where you hear phrases like oslacy and Trockenbauer and and all these different things. And you can work your way up the dryness and sweetness ladders. But for people who like mixed drinks, especially since you threw a fruit in there, mm. finding the right German Riesling may be that gateway drug to understanding white wines that you've been looking for. Some of the beautiful things about Riesling is it's got tremendous staying power in the bottle. I've had Rieslings that are 40, 50, 60 years old and they're still fresh to this day. Wow. Um, they can put off this beautiful aromatic, petrolly nose and then they can wait a couple minutes and you'll be inundated with fresh fruit like white peaches, and tangerine, and orange and you know, flower blossoms. They can be tremendously aromatic and then the mouthfeel for a riesling is generally described as unctuous it's very round on your mouth it's very soft there's nothing harsh about it you're also not going to get hammered with a lot of alcohol german rieslings tend to be in that high single digit to low double digit alcohol level sometimes as low as six to eight percent i mean there's beers out there that have that kind of a abv today right But I would definitely take somebody and try, hey, sit down with an Aussie Shiraz and then sit down with a German Riesling.
1: I like it. I'm taking notes. Wonderful. All right. Uh, Of course, I can play this back, too. Um, So back in 2001, when you you first started uh, getting into wine, did you ever toy with the notion of uh, running your own vineyard? No. I think that's one of those romantic dreams that a lot of people
0: have. Um, I mean this respectfully so don't read anything into it but winemakers are just farmers
1: mm.
0: they are exceptionally hardworking people who the very few of them are the rock stars that have the Aston Martins and the $300 bottle of wine I mean as a percentage winemakers are farmers they just happen to grow grapes and not corn.
1: Mm. And
0: they have the challenge of not only the growing season, but think about this. You know, a guy in Nebraska harvests his corn and he sells it and he goes on to Florida for a couple months, right? A winemaker who's been sweating out how that harvest is, not only now does he harvest his grapes, now he's got to turn them into something that people want to drink 3, 6, 9, 12, 18, 24 months later when he goes to bottle it. Yeah. They have got tremendous extension risk to their skill set. You're talking about people who truly understand chemistry as well as agriculture, and they have to be able to look at what their grapes are doing during the fermentation process to successfully pivot and produce a result that is repeatable. Now, You can get a lot of the California winemakers probably get a lot of grief for this and maybe California is unfair, but that's where I would say it started. That people have tried to turn wine into a formulaic thing. I want to produce the same wine year after year after year. This is where the old world has more of a romantic feel to it. And the quality of the vintage will really drive what's in the bottle at the end you have areas of the country where they're actually able to use more chemistry to produce the same wine within a much tighter band of variance year after year after year you go to the old world and you can have vintages of wine you're like this wine you know it was never hot enough it never it, it never got ripe i can taste the green in the in the fruit i can taste it in the wine i'm just not going to buy your wine this year so you, you have these battles that are going on in winemaking right now. A traditionalist versus a modernist may be a way to describe it. So I don't have the skill set of the patience to not only wet nurse my grapes all the way through the growing season, but then I lack the IQ and the capacity to understand the chemistry it takes to see them through their fermentation process.
1: Yeah, I, I love the, the notion that you just described of their part farmer and a major part of them is farmer. They're also part chemist. Uh, and the ones that ends, end up with the $300 bottles and the Aston Martins, they uh, are true artists, perhaps uh, maybe sprinkle, sprinkle in some luck for them. Uh, but I think about like uh, paintings, there are a lot of beautiful paintings that are only worth 50 bucks. That's right. Um, and the artists are really, really good, but they're not top top. One-tenth of one percent. I had
0: somebody describe it to me this way. I'm not going to tell you if I agree or disagree because I have to sell glasses to these people, right? (laughs) But are you familiar with an artist named Terry Redlin? No. Okay.
1: Um,
0: There are a number of painters that have made their reputation by following a theme. You know, the quintessential Midwestern farmhouse, man with his dog and his Ford F-150 pickup coming in after the duck hunt. That kind of a genre, right? You know, you can tell by the painting if it's a German shorthair or a Labrador in the background. It's the same product over and over and over again, but somehow they have made a tremendous amount of money changing just enough on the scene to catch the eye of the person who wants to buy it when they can finally afford it. Mm. they have produced a scalable repeatable model that sells at a premium and there are winemakers out there that have done just that i'm not here to question how they've approached capitalism that's up to them and people who buy their product and some of that products in my basement and then there are those who are truly i will produce what the land gave me this year and they're not going to do a damn thing other than produce a product within the confines of what their skill set and their raw product has given them. I have unripe grapes. Let me see what I can do with it. I have overripe grapes. Let me see what I can do with it. A lot of Goldilocks going on in the winemaking world, right? You spend your entire career hoping for just right.
1: And yeah, that's really I, hard. Yeah, I, I, I love what you're describing as the traditionalists. I, I think I would root for them every time. The traditionalists have a tendency, they went out of
0: fashion for a while. I think they're coming back into fashion rapidly right now. I think they're really, and, and by the way, the percentages of traditionalist and traditional style winemakers going back 20, 30 years, as a percentage of total winemakers was very small. The good ones who followed traditional methods, they were very rare. You've had a huge surge in people who want to study enology, who've gone to the UC Davises of the world, which is one of the best programs out there on winemaking. And they've taken formal education, very high-end chemistry, and brought it into the winemaking world. And they've really been able to do some tremendous things. Wine quality, on average, has gone up a lot. Since I started drinking wine at a serious level, what used to be to make up a number 20 wines or labels that you would want to drink or houses, there's probably a hundred times that today. Mm. And it's, and it's because the passion that goes with winemaking has been combined with enough revenue coming into winemaking to allow people to go to school at a higher level and a higher rate to produce better wines on average. It's kind of like bringing quality control and education to a manufacturing process for the first time, because there is a manufacturing component to it. And when you are given a certain product that you have to harvest and then press and then ferment, the broader your scope of knowledge is on the chemistry that goes into that and how to deal with the ups and the downs and Is it too cold? I can't get my fermentation. I'm stuck in mallow, right? All these things that take place. You've got a number of people out there that are now educated on a grand scale globally who know how to deal with that. And I think that the future for people who like to drink wine is good because it's more and more challenging for a bad wine to gain a foothold. We used to have to accept a tremendous amount of mediocrity. And the mediocrity is no longer really there. You have good and bad, but bad is a lot better than mediocre.
1: Mm.
0: A mediocre wine is disappointing. A bad wine is just a wine that they probably didn't have good enough material to actually do anything other than what they did. It's really not the winemaker's fault. I mean, anybody can throw sugar in wine. But the French don't allow that, for example. Within reason, we can have another topic on capitalization later. But
1: very cool. Uh, all right. So when you and I chatted, I don't know, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, you and I having an appreciation for jacks of all trades. Uh, I and, and you love learning. Uh, you you're you're a voracious consumer of, of learnings, uh, and you used a term with me that is. I think describes a super Jack of all trades. And I don't remember the term. What's the term? Polymath. Yes. Tell me about that.
0: A polymath is an individual whose knowledge uh, spans a tremendous number of subjects. They understand complexities. Their knowledge is not, you know, a, a mile wide, an inch deep. They actually have a tremendous amount of depth and structure to what they know. And they're not laser focused. So, yeah, I think, I think when our conversation I talked about, you know, and I am very, very far away from being a polymath. Polymaths are rare, but I view it as one of those things that. It's one of those things you should put on a hill and you should strive to become that individual because it means you're always willing to learn. If you go through life with your head down and you think that, you know, being myopic is the way to see the world. Well, let's just hope you're focused on cancer research or, you know, world hunger or something very, very important. But, you know, if you're in charge of running the punch press, it's a pretty miserable life. Yeah, or no, in charge of accounting at, a, you know, at Ford.
1: No, Or accounting for, uh, frankly, anybody.
0: That's right. I mean, come on. The world is a wonderful place. Never before has access to information been
1: easier than it is today. We are going to give a plug for Audible. Tell me what tell uh, the listening audience what you told me about uh, the Audible program. Oh, I think that, you know,
0: one of the greatest features that Audible has is their their Great Books lecture, which are free. And the Great Books are a series of lectures that are done by the best in class professors in all the universities across the world. So if, you know, Uh, Richard Feynman, physics professor, MIT, probably one of the most intelligent people to ever walk the face of the planet. Okay. Not just our generation or generation before us, but ever in the history of time, Manhattan project guy, right? If you want to know physics and you didn't get into MIT, those, those series of lectures that you can get access to for generally speaking, free or a de minimis amount of money, like less than a half-off case of Bud Light a a month, you are missing out on some of the best things this world has to offer. You need to start listening to the great books and the great courses. It 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 is a... It truly is a wonder of the world that that much information is deliverable and consumable by anyone with a set of headphones for the price of a decent pizza per month
1: it's it seems ludicrous right think about that just 15 years ago
0: it's crazy I mean the the, the great courses have been out a long time I mean it' the thing you used to be able to check out at your library and you get this stack like this book it would be like a you know an atlas and they all had to be on cassette tapes where you got like you know 32 minutes per side and this would be 60 hours of lectures by Richard Feynman you take home the thing and you never get through it all. But in this day and age of having an earbud in whenever the hell you want and going on a walk and being on a plane and not wanting to make eye contact with a resident sociopath on the subway, you know, you you can literally let your brain absorb a tremendous amount of information today via a digital media. And if you're not doing it, I think you're missing out.
1: I think that's right. Um, I, I I am a busy guy. I have not checked them out yet, but I think now that you've mentioned it twice to me, I, I have to go check those books out.
0: Look, I got to admit, look, some of them are dry, all right? I mean, if you want to know about Gothic architecture, you can find a great course on it, and maybe you got to struggle to get through it. But the world is flatter today than it's ever been. Information travels at the speed of light. What those books allow us to do relatively easily, if you want to put the time in, is to expose yourself to the contextual awareness of what is going on around us on a global scale as opposed to what's going on in our backyard.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: The ability to use that type of a knowledge base and education and free information to actually put context around what some talking head on a cable news channel is providing you is more critical today than it's ever been. We are moving away from critical thought into sound bites. We need to be able to take the sound bites and apply them to our own basis of knowledge and understand how to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, I, Great I think courses can do that.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's well said. Uh, I, I think we are becoming weaker and, and excuse the term, uh, dumber uh, than prior generations. And the the irony is the the speed of uh, information flow is greater than it's ever been, but I think we may be going the wrong direction as a culture.
0: Yes, it is unfortunate that it has never been easier to learn, and we've never had a larger population unwilling to gut it out.
1: Yeah, no, it's well said. All right, Chris, I'm gonna do something fun that I do with most of my guests. Uh, Apologies up front, because this Comes out of left field a little bit, but it's meant to be more revealing about you. No, uh, you're a talk show host. It's your talk show. You can have it at any time of day, but you only get to do this once. Talk show lasts about an hour, hour and a half. You get to talk to three people and have a fourth perform. Um, and and if you want to interview uh, that act, you can you can talk to them as well. The uh, one is male. One guest is male, one is female. The uh, act can be a solo musical artist or can be a group. Uh, And then if you're into comedy, uh, think stand-up comedy, but you can also think other forms of comedy. Uh, These guests can be alive or dead. Uh, Your show can be pure fun. It could be thought-provoking. It could be a a mix of those two plus anything else you want it to be. Who are your guests for your one-time only talk show?
0: So I grew up I'll do the musical one first. I grew up in the 80s and early 90s, which, depending upon how you look at it, can be good or bad with respect to music. Um, I didn't get to see the band play, but I've seen the lead play live. Bring the talking heads on mm. because I just. Missed the capacity to go to the concerts during the great, you know, the big suit tour and you
1: know,
0: so I love David Byrne, I love his work. I'd probably bring them on. Male, man, anyone from history, huh?
1: Anyone from history, anybody alive today, they can be a friend of yours, it can be a family member, it can be somebody famous. And while you're thinking about it, David Byrne is the most creative bravest musical person I, I think that's ever been created.
0: Yeah, guys, guys, great. Um, and I'm assuming I can ignore all language barriers and we'll assume there's a babblefish app and I can communicate regardless of this individual's. Uh... Man, I'd love to know what the hell is going through Alexander the Great's brain.
1: Ah, You got a lot
0: going on. I mean, you know, I think he—he he might not even been thirty in Concord. essentially most of the known world, right? Um, yeah.
1: Female. A lot of my male guests on this podcast struggle to come up with a female guest for this uh, this particular question. That's it. And
0: that's unfortunate because there's been a lot of great females in history. I'm trying to think about, you know, the first part that popped to my mind, if you just want the first answer that came up, it'd be Jonah Bark. Yep. But I'm wondering, and I don't know the history well enough, you know, where would Cleopatra come in on that? Where would the original Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I come in? Hell. Quite honestly, the hell of life that Queen Elizabeth II um, had, right? Hester Prynne would be a hell of an interview. Who is that? Hester Prynne's A Scarlet Letter. Ah. That was the first adulterer back in the day. Yeah. If you want to look at it that way in the the Americas. Um,
1: But yeah, I I think I'll stick with my first call, which is Joan of Arc. Okay. It's a really good answer. Comedy? Are you a comedy guy at all? Big comedy guy. Um,
0: I don't. I don't know that you can actually interview Robin Williams. Robin Williams interviews you, and then takes over the stage.
1: Um, yeah, you can get four words out, and then he's off.
0: Yeah, I mean, Christ. You go back and look at his his great stuff on um, Carson Show, and you can see he ran with it. Don Rickles <laughs> would probably. I see myself as having a very similar tone when I want to be a jackass as Rickles. Nobody was as good at, at doing what, what Rickles did as he is. I mean, he set the standard for that, whether it was self-deprecating or, quite frankly, insulting humor. Um, but if I have a talk show and I want to talk to somebody and find out what's going on in their head, I think it's pretty hard to not put George Carlin at the top of that list because I found
1: his humor to be cerebral. Very. So I'd go with Carlin. Yeah, Carlin, uh, his thinking became deeper and deeper as he aged. Uh, and I wish he'd stuck around a little bit longer than he did. He, he left us too soon. Too soon. Way too soon. Too, the
0: great ones do, right? It's always too soon. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's fair. That's a that's, great way to think about that, it.
0: That's my lineup. So Joan of Arc,
1: George Carlin. Talking Heads, and um, Alexander the Great. Yeah, that's I. I would definitely check that show out, Chris. Uh, I have to go back to Rickles, uh, him interacting with the Rat Pack uh, back <laughs> in the day. Him interacting with presidents. Uh, him and Carson. It's just, it's just gold. I could watch Rickles interact for hours. I, if, if you if you haven't
0: watched you know, and the Dean Martin roasts are some of the greatest pieces of television that have ever been done. Uh, very few people, I think, you know, our age—we're only a couple of years apart—but I don't think, I don't think, gets enough credit. Um, it's Foster Brooks. You familiar oh. with
1: Foster? Oh
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean the, the the prototypical sound like he's actually schnockered and he's as sober as the day is long. <laughs> but you go back to those Dean Martin roasts and you look at the guys. Who did this? And hell, the women. Lucille Ball. There's a great example of somebody who doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. Um, but god damn, Rickles was
1: great in those roasts. Yeah, he, he was always funny. Always. Always on. Absolutely. Well, cool. Hey, I'm glad Bill connected us, Chris. I I told he you did. an hour. It's been about an hour 15. Uh I learned This has been fun. Yeah, I learned a ton. I absolutely had fun. And uh I'm glad you did it. And I appreciate you doing it this has been a blast.
0: I appreciate the invite. I'm very humbled by it and feel free to edit out about 54 minutes of this crap.
1: (laughs) No, I'm pretty sure I'm keeping it all in. Wonderful. Be in touch, sir. Thanks for your time. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodipodcast.com.